This broadcast is coming to you from Redfern, which is on unceded Gadigal land. I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respect to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to the communities of Redfern and Waterloo. Gadigal people have been sharing stories and songs on this land since the beginning of time. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Record collections and recollections. Out of the box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, Mia Hull here on your radio, streaming online or on the podcast at your convenience. This is Out of the Box. Each week I sit down with one person and roll through the stories and records that have defined their life. Today I'm joined by retired Australian Uniting Church Minister Dorothy McRae-McMahon. Dorothy is a powerful activist in Australia. Her voice has rung out in opposition to the White Australia policy, the apartheid and the Vietnam War, among many other things. She's played a role in shaping the women's movement here in Australia and the activism she's done throughout her life has been recognised in several awards, including the Australian Government Peace Award, the Australian Human Rights Medal and the Grand Stirrer at the Edna Awards. Dorothy is the author of 17 books and co-editor of the South Sydney Herald. She's led a remarkable life, and for the next hour, I'm going to try my best to get a snapshot of all of it through Dorothy's stories and the songs that have soundtracked the special moments. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today, Dorothy. It's a pleasure. Dorothy, your life starts in 1938. You were born in Tassie and spent your early years in rural Victoria. What was that like? Oh, it was it was very pleasant. Those country areas, you get used to knowing people and you're in a, uh, a nice environment. I can always remember seeing owls in the trees and all sorts of, you know, interesting bits of nature. And what was your family home like? Oh, our family homes were always quite grand because we were... Our dad was a Methodist minister and we were living in these grand parsonages, as they were called in those days, rather than manses. And uh, so we often lived in these really grand houses, but the stipend, the wages that ministers were given, was so low that we were hungry all the time. We didn't have enough to eat and we were always trying growing vegetables and trying to have a few chooks and eat the eggs and things like that. But no, it was quite hard going and you didn't have... Um, decent clothes. I always had second-hand clothes from my aunts and things like that, so I looked awful. Um, yes, so it was it was a hard life in some ways. What was your mum doing at the time? Oh, well, she was just um, uh, married to dad and um, uh, very active in the um, in the church. She always was that, but um, she and I didn't get on very well together. And I'll always remember that she wouldn't let me finish school. And I wanted to go to university like my two sisters did and my two brothers. Um, but she didn't let me do that. She Why didn't she let you finish school? Well, I never really understood because um, at the time when the decision was made, um, we were in Ballarat at that point and I was, I, I was getting being awarded the most outstanding student in Ballarat High School and uh, she still didn't feel that I was competent to go to university and so she stopped me. What did she want for you instead? She wanted me to be a preschool teacher and I, di- and I did get trained as that and I was a preschool teacher for a few years before I got married. 
Yeah, tell me about when you got married because you were quite young then, weren't you? I was, but of course, you see, in in, uh, in our day, in, in the olden days, <laughs> um, people did often get married quite young. And so I got married when I was 21 and had my first child when I was 22. <laughs> so, yes, married Barry McMahon. Hmm. Tell me about your first child. That's Christopher, isn't it? Yes, it yes. is. Yes, yes, that's Christopher. And... Um, it was very, very sad, and I'll always feel a sense of grief about him. He was a very bright little boy, beautiful little boy when I had him, and, and when he was two and a half, uh, we decided we'd um, give him the polio vaccine, which we did. But what we didn't know was that he'd inherited my overstrong antibody system, uh, which I I didn't even know I had, and, uh, and it um, reacted badly and brain-damaged him and he never spoke to anyone again. He was quite a wild boy, and I looked after him for 16 years of my life, and um, that was really hard because he was bigger than me um, by the time he got, you know, to uh, about 12. And, um, yes, he used to run off down the street and yell and scream and bang his head against things, and and we couldn't get any any doctors to give him any medication in those days. Um, Yes, so it was very... Very hard to do, but and very sad. And I finally, uh, when he was sixteen, we put him into care at Sunnyfield, and they've been wonderful for him. And now he's very frail and can't walk, and probably fading away. Really, I always hope he might come back in another, have another life, because he was such a beautiful little boy originally. Yeah, as the bright little boy that you mm, remember. Yes, spending those sixteen years caring for him. Were you still working at that time? Um, no, um, I, I wasn't wasn't well. I, I sort of, when I say I wasn't working, I certainly wasn't teaching or anything like that. I didn't do that after I married. In those days, women didn't work once they got married, and they did a lot of other work. <laughs> um, yes, I just had to had to care for him really. I know that around the time that that happened with Christopher, you faced another family tragedy involving your sister. Is it okay if I ask you about that as well? Oh, yes, of course, yes. Yes, there were um, three girls and two boys in our family and um, my beloved sister, she was... We called her Thais. (laughs) I looked up... It it was... I can still hear this little voice saying when someone said, what's your name, she'd say, my name's Thais. T H A I S with two dots on the I, and it was. And we, re- I realised much later, it was a Greek name, and it should have been Thais, really. <laughs> but Thais, she was called. Yeah. And uh, she was a, a very, very gifted young person on all fronts, and uh, had all sorts of, you know, rewards from school and university and things. And then she married John, and um, they were driving. Uh, down to Victoria. No, no, yes, I think it was from Sydney to Victoria. Anyway, uh, they a very strong gust of wind blew their car off the highway and banged it into a tree and they both died. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I've never heard of that happening yeah. before. No, it's very unusual, but I, I did hear of another one fairly recently, oddly enough, and I thought, oh, oh it could happen just with wind. I'm yes, with so a great gust to hear of that, wind. Dorothy, yeah. those are two enormous tragedies to face so they early are. in your life. They and are. You were, you were quite involved with the church at that point as well. Was your faith yes. shaken at all? Uh, no, because that's not the way I understand. Uh, I don't think God does these things. I think we are set free to 
do what we wish and uh, accidents happen and things like that in it. Um, I mean, the good thing was that she did speak to me a few times after she died, um, which made me very sure that there's life after death. And the sort of thing she did was, because um, Christopher was um, unmedicated and was in such... That's my son, the brain-damaged one, hadn't been... um, dealt with in any particular way by any doctor to help him calm down, she said, Dearth, my family nickname, (laughs) Dearth, take Christopher to see Dr Laura Nesbitt in Collins Street. And Collins Street in Melbourne was the main one where all the specialists were, doctors. Um, I looked up and I found this doctor and I rang up um, because other doctors were telling us he was just spoilt. That's why he was was it like he was anyway I I, uh, looked this doctor up in the phone book and found the number and rang up and uh, the doctor herself the specialist answered the phone and she said are you Thais Warner's sister and I said yes I am and she said well the presence of your sister came to me this morning and said you would ring and uh, really yeah and she she was she was an allergist and uh, anyway we took Christopher to see her and she she said as he had um, proper, you know, brain tests and things. And um, we said, no, nobody's given him any tests. And she did give him a whole lot of tests and found out that he was brain damaged. Let's jump into a song now. Yes. What's the first song you'd like to play today? Oh, uh, if we could play Silent Night. Um, I love Christmas time and I love that carol, especially. It's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on FBI Radio 94.5. This is Silent Night. the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on FBI Radio. The song was called Silent Night and it was a selection by my guest on the show today, Dorothy McRae McMahon. Dorothy, you and your family moved to Sydney in 1964. Mm. What drove that move? Oh, my my then husband's um, uh, move in, in where his work was. Yes, and I mean, he's even though he's no longer my husband, um, we're still very good friends. What was Sydney like at that time? Can you paint a picture of 1964 Sydney for me? Because we'd come up from Melbourne, it seemed very much um, sort of a larrikin's place (laughs) (laughs) and still is in a way um, compared to Melbourne, which is, you know, very sort of organised and serious. It's a culture, a very different culture from Sydney, yeah, so, um, but still, we did live um, out at Eastwood and, and that was a gentle sort of um, suburb. So you're now championed as a crusader and an amazing activist. From all accounts, it seems like Sydney was the fertile soil for where all the activism started. Would you would you agree with that? Uh, yes, I would, yes. It was partly the, the part of the church we were involved in, which was quite radical at that time. The um was a Methodist church in those days because um, the Uniting Church wasn't quite in existence. It was almost. Um, also, my my father, who was a Methodist minister, was, was very radical and very political. Yes, I'll always remember when, uh, during the Second World War, 
he kept getting white feathers in in a, his our letterbox, which you know was a very nasty thing to do to anybody. Cause what, what does that mean? It meant that uh, you were a traitor because you didn't join the army and go and uh, go to the to the war. Um, I mean, he he was Methodist minister, so he did have to be a chaplain, but he did uh, he did decide that perhaps he'd better go to rebel. And um, I'll always remember him standing, his three daughters in front of him, and he said, now, girls, I may never speak to you again, but I want you, if I don't come back or if I do come back, I want you to always oppose racism and violence in the community and lacking things lacking in justice, and I want you to take a stand for that on my behalf and uh, and, and your own behalf. And I'll always remember that. <laughs> Were those beliefs widely held by the community at the time? No, not really, no, no. I mean, you'd strike a a little bit of that in the Methodist Church because the Methodist Church tended to be politically active and radical. But on the whole, people, they just thought those sort of things were unnecessary and boring, you know, and they didn't do anything. But our father had always, um, always challenged us to to be involved in uh, struggles for justice and so on. And uh, I was a very shy little girl, believe it or not. <laughs> Hard to believe now. <laughs> but anyway, I was. And uh, I remember being going to a Methodist conference and I felt as though I wanted to speak in the debate and I I was too shy to do that. And I, I told my dad that after we came out of the conference. He was there with me. And he said, Well, when you care enough, you'll find a voice, Dorothy. And so I did. <laughs> and the voice has been going on ever since. Yeah. But what was the first time you found your voice and, and stood up for an injustice? It was another church uh, environment and uh, and it, and we were discussing um, Asian occupation, well, occupation, Asian people living in our country and who were suffering from a lot of racism. And, uh, and, and I got up and spoke then. <laughs> Tell me about your opposition to the white Australia policy. You and your partner were kind of pioneers on that front almost. We were. We were, yes, when I got married. Uh, not my not my partner, my husband. Yes. And I uh, got married. Um, we were the first people to uh, form a group to oppose the white Australia policy and we kept talking about that and going on and on because it was very unjust to the Indigenous people of this country. They weren't allowed to come into pubs with us or anything like that, you know. They had to keep separate and um, were very, very badly uh, dealt with and related to by the um, the people who invaded this country without um, their permission. And uh, so we kept on talking about it in all sorts of different contexts. And finally, um, in 1967, we got rid of it. Yeah, that's that's incredible. And you were opposing so many things that were happening on distant shores as well, the apartheid, the Vietnam War. Why did these things all strike a chord with you? I just believed in it. I believed that as a Christian, that was my job was my way of living um, if I was to be true to my faith um, it was to uh, believe in a God of justice and um, that I should take a stand. How did you become involved in the women's movement? Well we started doing some work on that within the uh, Uniting Church and uh, other, other churches as well a bit too but also there were groups of people who groups of women who uh, were feminists and who who set up 
groups to we enjoyed each other's company but we also planned how we could take our stand and write letters to editors that was one of the things we did a lot of uh, of really uh, writing letters to uh, editors of the um, part of the most popular newspapers of the time and things like that but also offering have running conferences and um having a time when we had a whole group of speakers and invited other people to come to hear them and things like that. Yeah, it it seems like you were so busy in this time, just out fighting the good fight always. Mm. Was that a a daily thing? What did a day in the life look like for you then? It often did have writing something or reading something. Um, Sometimes I would offer to speak at various things and uh, joined the Labor Party and uh, um, What were you doing with the Labor Party? Oh well I was radical you see and and if you were a member of a a party you often uh, did um, give support or get support um, from the groups of people I was trying to think of the Johnny Faulkner that's right that was the guy I was a friend with and we used to do all sorts of uh, strategies within the Labor Party to try and make it and keep it radical and things like that, and it was the most radical political party of the time. and And we could see that. Uh, and uh, I, I'd learned in various ways that if you were a member of a political party, you often had more opportunities to try and move for change. Because, I mean, a, a political party in parliaments um, had the right of speaking on things and. Uh, you know, for example, one of my dear friends at the moment is Penny Wong, and uh, she does all these things in in the in the Senate now. But uh, yeah, and also, um, uh, oh, I'm just trying to think of her name, Tanya Plibersek. She was a friend of mine too. Yes, and we uh, just name dropping. Yeah, <laughs> no, we used to meet up and have coffees and yep. things like that. It was great. Yes. In a few minutes, I want to talk about the relationship between all of this incredible activism you were doing in the 60s or 70s and 80s and your involvement in the church. But first, I want to jump into a song. What would you like to play today? I think we'll have, um, yes, I am Australian. Why did you choose that one? Oh, well, it's, it's a song that I would much rather have as our national anthem. Because I think our national anthem is pretty boring somehow, not very impressive. (laughs) (laughs) It's The Seekers on FBI Radio 94.5. This is I Am Australian. We are one, but we are many. And from all the lands on earth we come, we'll share a dream. And sing with one voice I am, you are, we are Australian I am Australian It was The Seekers on FBI Radio 94.5. You're listening to Out of the Box. My name is Mia Hull and I'm joined by activist and retired Australian Uniting Church Minister Dorothy McRae-McMahon. Dorothy, where were you in life when you began training to be a minister with the Uniting Church? It was when I was about 50 and uh, I just had this sense of calling, of being called to the ministry. And it was funny because um, my youngest brother, who lives in Hobart now, he had the same sense of calling. And I'll always remember my mother saying to me when we told her, I wrote to her and told her and so did my brother, 
she she wrote to me and said, oh, what about your children? <laughs> in other words, if you train for the ministry, you won't be giving your children enough attention, looking after them well enough. Whereas she wrote to my brother and said, oh, hi, John. I'm so thankful for your calling to the ministry. When I was holding you as a little child, I always hoped that one day you would be a minister. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I was the first woman to be ordained in Australia and uh, so it was a bit unusual to have a woman minister. But even so, I was supported in doing that all the way through by the Uniting Church. Congratulations. That's that's amazing. (laughs) How close together did your mum receive the letter from you and from your brother? Within a few days of each other. Really? Yes. That's incredible that... Yes, we you were, both had that calling at the same was, time. It was, and we we loved it, and we were, you know, the two of us because we're both good friends, and I often think it's quite interesting because uh, uh, there were um, five of us originally, um, but anyway, uh, all the other members of the family were geniuses and had, you know, very high degrees and doctorates and all sorts of stuff, and John and I were the the least. <laughs> <laughs> The least um, academically um, qualified, and uh, yes, we didn't. We're not the geniuses. <laughs> but you're the first woman ordained in Australia. That's incredible. What was that experience like? Oh, it uh, it was very moving. I I was very very touched that they would would do that. Two things. I w- well three things really. I was involved with um, work with the um, World Council of Churches. And they asked me to be the first woman in the world to chair their worship committee. And I did that for seven years in Geneva, uh, three times a year. Um, the other thing was that um, the Australian Council of Churches um, involved me before I was, just before I was ordained uh, in working for international justice, you know, with poor people around the world. And I visited 33 countries on their behalf. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> All in one tour, or was this just no, over no, the, no, over no, the years it was, that you no, were there? No, no, it was spread out over a few years. Yeah, yeah, it was unbelievable. That's incredible. I learnt so much. I really did. It made me much more open to interfaith relationships and uh, and cross cultural relationships and things like that. I learnt a huge amount from other cultures around the world. Mm. Your passport would look amazing as well. <laughs> it did. So many stamps. <laughs> At the time, you know, this was still when you were, well, you still are, are a radical and fighting the good fight. Did you bring those values to your congregation as well? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I did. The, 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 my first congregation, well, my main congregation, in fact, was the Pitt Street Uniting Church in the centre of the city. And... Uh, when I went there, we had seven, 17 members in a church that seats 3,000 people. Why were there so few people there? I think it was sort of it became originally um, an ageing congregation and lots of people died, but other people were sort of, they, they weren't happy. In the 10 years I was there, we added um, 210 members to the congregation. It did become a radical one, and it still is. And I'll be carried out of there. It's my favourite ten years. <laughs> ten years of my life. It was a very, very important part of my life. And I met Nelson Mandela, and he became a very close friend of mine. And we kept in touch until he died, actually. And uh, he came and um, spoke to people in our congregation at Pitt Street and things like that. So, and we we had lots of um, people come from outside um, the country and the church who 
came and visited us and we created a very radical congregation there. Yes. I, I can't believe you just skimmed over <laughs> your friendship with Nelson Mandela. Oh, um, yes. He, 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 I often say he was a person who I would say was most like I imagine Jesus was, quite frankly. When he, I remember when he first arrived and uh, he was um, introduced to people in the Catholic cathedral and he, he walked down the aisle and and you could feel this sort of aura around him and people sort of put out their hands to be near to, just near to touching him. They didn't touch him, but they just wanted to... And you could feel a sort of aura around this, this person who for seven years had lived in isolation um, out in a, you know, in amongst few rocks on a couple of trees sort of thing there was something about him that just oh, touched my heart and uh, yeah and afterwards because I was asked to speak to welcome him by the uh, Catholic um, uh, people we talked afterwards and um, I'll never forget knowing him he was really special and so you're part of this quite radical congregation as you've described it mm. how did that take form what kind of projects were you involved with well, we used to have um, all sorts of banners and things outside the front of the church um, which stated that we were for this or against that or whatever, you know, political things. What are some of the things? Uh, well, it would have been things like the White Australia policy but um, but also uh, the, the level of racism that was in the country at that stage and it was at that stage that I started to be attacked, well... I ended my marriage. Yes, I did that before I was ordained um, because I realised who I was and I I hadn't realised. I, I thought I was perhaps married to the wrong person because I didn't fancy sex with him. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realised a little bit later no, uh, that I was actually a lesbian. Yeah, and um, I, I definitely want to get into that later in the show. Sure, yes, we'll talk well. about that more later. <laughs> yes, that's right, yes. But... Um, uh, yes, uh, when I was at Pittsburgh Church, we stood against the... There was a lot of racism against Asian immigration at that point and we were very outgoing on that. Uh, we were also calling for governments to be far more just to Indigenous people and so on. And it was those sort of issues uh, that we were taking our stand on and and um, hanging banners on the front of the church and being part of marches through the city. And in, in, I mean, in those days, you, I mean, now if you want to have a, a protest about something, you think you've done very well if you get about a 1,000 people in a march. We used to, not just us, but other people, the groups of us together, used to um, get 100,000 people marching through the city and things like that. Really? Oh, yes. There was much more activism um, in, on political issues than there is now. Obviously, the, the radical views that you were bringing to the congregation were well received by that community. I want to gauge what the public felt about the activism you and your congregation were doing. Obviously, not everyone was a fan of the work. What happened there? We did have quite a bit of support, but even so, on a lot of the radical issues, we had people opposing us. Parts of the rest of the church, for example, uh, thought we were not appropriately Christian for some reason. When you think of what Jesus was like, you'd <laughs> wonder about their view. Um, but then we did, uh, we had... Um, at one in one service, we had a group of men march down the middle of our church, carrying a swastika and placed it on the communion table, <laughs> and they were a group of neo Nazis, and they started attacking us from then on. When you say that they started attacking you, were they physical 
attacks? Well, they certainly threatened us um, in terms of, of physical attacks. Most of what they did was to attack me personally. Uh, by this stage, my marriage had ended and uh, because I'd realised who I was. And I lived in a, a just a little semi-detached house over in Leichhardt and, um, well, they burned an eff effigy of a woman on my doorstep they painted um, all sorts of things like lesbian slut and things like that across the front of my church. Not, not in my church, my, my house where I lived. And they used to come night after night together with the special branch of the police um, and bang on the door and shout and scream and sing things and whatnot, throw things especially over the front of where I lived by myself. That's horrendous. Oh, it was. It was, it was, it was terrible. Uh, there were wonderful moments within it, like when my dear son, the second son that I had, he came down and he painted out the things on the wall which, where they'd painted all these things, like lesbian slut, and uh, he painted out slut but not lesbian. And I said, oh, Robert, Bertie, as he was known, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm proud of you being a lesbian mum. <laughs> Very special, yeah. And how, how long did that paint stay up on your wall? It would have been about a year that I was living there and then I met my partner who I moved in with and we lived together for 20 years and it was different. Yeah. Oh, and I should mention that in the end they were arrested and the special branch of the police who'd been colluding with them was done away with by the police. The police were a part yes, of it? Yes, yeah. <gasps> Yes, a special branch they were called and they were colluding with them, helping them do this and uh, obviously they were racist. Anyway, the head of the police did away with them when they found out about it all and uh, they put some of them in prison and all sorts of stuff. How did it all come to a head? The final straw was they were putting these things all across the front of my house and um, uh, I decided I couldn't cope any longer and I needed a break so I went to Scotland and my family had left the island of Skye 250 years ago. Um, but I went back and as soon as I stepped into the light of Scotland, I, oh, I still, I, I'm going goosebumpy now. I felt, <laughs> I, I felt it over there. I just thought, oh, this is my place. This is where I belong. And uh, I went across the sky and uh, saw where they'd lived. And uh, yes, I, if I hear Scottish music and I play it myself often and things like that, and uh, I, I just uh, love that memory of going to Scotland, and that lifted my heart and restored my energy to keep standing against the neo-Nazis. Let's play a song for your time in Scotland now. You've chosen a track by the Corries for today. Yes. What's it called? Uh, it's called Loch Lomond, and that's, that's uh, of course, a part of the uh, Highlands of Scotland. Oh, you take the high road and I'll take the low I'll be in Scotland before you, for me and my true love will never meet again by the bonny, bonny banks of Oklahoma. That was Loch Lomond on FBI Radio 94.5. The song was by the Corries and it was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box, Dorothy McRae McMahon. Dorothy, in the 90s, you were the National Director of Missions in the Uniting Church. Mm. You mentioned before that at this point, 
some people started to know about your sexuality, your sons knew, the, the neo-Nazis that were harassing you yes. knew. Obviously the church must have known that as well. Yes, it did. Did, did that have an impact on your role there? Well, no. What ha- I was surprised because when I was ordained, um, I was already in a relationship with my beloved partner, Ali, and um, I was attending the national conference of the of the church, um, of the Uniting Church, I mean, that was, and um, I just felt that, one, I needed to be honest with the church about that, but also to give recognition to my partner, not to ignore her as though she didn't exist. And so when I was at the national conference, I stood up in the middle of it because there, there were two, about a couple of hundred people at it and uh, said that I wanted to share with the church the truth about who I was. And I'm standing there trembling all over because I thought I was going to be um, lose my ordination. Anyway, I stood up and in a trembling voice I shared with them that I was a lesbian and that I had a beautiful partner. Well, someone moved a vote uh, uh, to support me and um, I hadn't arranged that, but they did. And um, I got an, an 85% vote of support. Really? <laughs> I did. I'm, I'm so happy that happened. I know. <laughs> it was extraordinary. I couldn't believe it. I yeah. stood there and I thought, oh, and I've got tears running down my face <laughs> and everything when I'm standing there. But uh, no, I was amazed. I really did think that I'd lose my ordination and lose my membership of the church. But no, they stood with me very firmly and the Uniting Church has been open you know, they supported same-sex marriage and all sorts of things when it came and uh, it stood. So so for you on a personal level, what was mm. that like to grapple with your relationship with Ali but then also your relationship with the church at the same time? Did those two aspects of your life interact with each other? Uh, yes, they did because um, Ali, who was brought up an Irish Catholic and, and she was a Kiwi and she lived her early life in New Zealand... And um, yes, and but she didn't have a good experience um, of um, of the Catholic Church. Uh, she was always getting caned and things like that. When she had to go to a Catholic school, and uh, being her, she'd take a stand on and challenge all sorts of things, and then get punished for saying the wrong things and whatnot. Anyway, um, she she'd say to me, uh, well, two things. If I was um, over the top in the way I related. Uh, she'd say, don't think you're God, darling, you're not. So <laughs> no one is God except God. And uh, she'd say that. But she'd say to me uh, she was a person of faith but not of the church. And uh, and yet she, when she died um, of brain cancer, uh, she wanted our minister, um, Andrew Collis, uh, who's still minister of the church I go to now in uh, Waterloo, um, she wanted him to take the funeral. And he did. And, uh, yes, so it was a sort of a... It it was fine. And um, I must say uh, I was always grateful that I'd been brought up to try and um, agree with everybody, you know, not to challenge them apart from justice issues in a sort of more general sort of way, uh, you know, um, groups of people and so on. I'd been brought up to be kind and nice and polite to everybody. She taught me... uh, She said, if you love people deeply you can fight with them and doesn't uh, it doesn't challenge your relationship it, you know you might disagree with each other and argue and carry on but you can do that 
with confidence that, that a good, loving relationship can cope with that, you know, and that was true. I learnt that from her and that was very special. What was your relationship with Ali like? Oh, it was profound. Um, I'll never have, uh, you know, I've had a few people try and have a relationship with, with me after she died, but she will be the love of my life forever. We had 20 wonderful years together and, uh, yes, it was such a rich experience and I, I don't ever want to... Have any, I mean, I like have lots of great friends, but not not that sort of relationship. It's interesting. I always feel she's somewhere on a nice little white cloud and, and I'll see a little fluffy cloud and as soon as I see it, tears come down my cheeks oh. because I feel the love for her still. I always feel her nearby saying, don't be... Don't be lazy, darling. Go to the gym. Go on. <laughs> Things like that. Yeah, but no, I'll always love her. It was very special. Let's play a song for Ali now. Mm-hmm. You're making me cry. <laughs> Let's play a song for Ali now. What would you like to play? I'd like to play the New Zealand National Anthem. I love that anyway, but I'd like to play it in memory of her. Because she's Kiwi? Yes, yes, <laughs> and her family is still over there. And uh, they still keep ringing me up, her brothers and sisters, which is just lovely. They ring me up and talk to me on my birthday and all sorts of things. It's beautiful. beautiful. It is. Well, we'll play this one for Ali now. It's the New Zealand National Anthem, God Defend New Zealand on FBI Radio (laughs) 94.5. the New Zealand National Anthem on FBI Radio 94.5, God Defend New Zealand. (laughs) My name is Mia Hull. This show is Out of the Box and I am joined by retired minister for the Australian Uniting Church, Dorothy McRae-McMahon. Along with her involvement with the church and her fierce activism throughout her life, Dorothy's penned 17 books and is currently the co-editor of the South Sydney Herald. How did you end up in the newspaper, Dorothy? Uh, the South Sydney Herald is actually um, a paper put out by our parish. We do it. It's a free local paper. It's read by 30,000 people each month. We did it because <laughs> because a guy who died, sadly, um, young, youngish when he was youngish, Trevor Davies, um, he, he and I started it because he felt that in the mainstream papers, the general ones, only bad news ever came out of Redfern, and uh, which is part of our parish area, and um, so and we felt that there were all sorts of bits of courage and oh interesting things that went on in in Redfern that was just seen as a slummy sort of area that no one would ever do anything significant, and uh, so we started it and uh, yeah it's a great. Great little effort, but uh, and it is quite a lot of work. And, but and I was um, part of that, and therefore one of the editors. Yes, and now I look after the faith column. And what's your involvement with the church look like now? Oh, I'm very committed to it. I, I love it. I would never miss it for a moment. And um, I'm part of all the, nearly all the meetings. Um, we do often do them on Zoom these days, of course. Um, because on our, our services on Sunday, you can go to the church itself for a service or you can be on Zoom, and we have it up on the wall of the church, the people who are on the Zoom. 
it's a very inclusive church. That's one of the reasons I, I love it. I mean, it's high church. We have Eucharist every Sunday, which is very unusual for a uniting church. But it's also inclusive. You know, we've got a um, person who's transgender. We've got lesbians and, and um, gay people and, uh, you know, just all sorts of people of different um, uh, nationalities and things like that. So, yes, it's a... It's a very inclusive church, which doesn't apply to a lot of churches. And you said that that's the church that they'll carry you out of. No, they'll carry me out of Pitt Street. They'll carry you out of Pitt yeah, Street. Yeah, because that was the, they were that was the t- ten most significant years of my <laughs> life, really. You know, in the way things changed for me, and when I met Ali, and all sorts of things like yeah. that. But Andrew Collis, who's our present minister, will be the person who leads that service. But and and the people from my the, my present church will probably have a little special service in there too, as well as the one in Fifth Street. Yeah, I but think. Before we jump to your funeral and <laughs> talking about where, where your funeral's going to be held. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what does the future look like for you? What do you want to do between now and being carried out of Pitt Street Church? Well, I, I uh, yes, I, I, I like to have meaning and purpose in my life. I often say I'd rather die than be bored, um, even if I, I get more tired faster than, than I used to. Um, I tend to do work in the morning and then put my feet up a lot of the afternoon and I don't go out at night much and things like that. Um, but I, I love to be able to still do that editing work and writing uh, for that. And I I still, I was going to write a book of poems this year, but I didn't get to it because I, all sorts of things happened uh, to me. But um, It's only June, Dorothy. You could still I, I could still do <laughs> knock some. one out. <laughs> I, could, I, I could actually because I work quite fast. Um, it just flows, you know, when I... Most of my books are books of liturgy, and a lot of them were printed um, by a um, publisher in England, actually, an internet inter, um, church publisher. Um, and but quite a lot here too. So uh, that's what a lot of them are. But there are others that are written on themes about justice or my own autobiography and things like that. Yes, but no, I just love to to write, even if no one does anything with the writing. I still like doing that. And uh, and also just uh, relating to the 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 church and its people over there, and I'm over there every few days doing things. But also, I've got uh, a wonderful relationship with a group of women called the uh, Morning Tea Group. Uh, we formed it. We we had an exercise class over in Lilyfield when I was um, uh, with Ali over there, and I used to go to this exercise class and. Um, then after a bit, we decided we were getting a bit past the exercise class, and we formed a morning tea group. And we have a have a um, morning tea every second um, Saturday and every month. I th- I remember saying to them, "Oh, it'll all die out in a few weeks or a year or something." And it hasn't. It's been going for twenty three years. Amazing. And, and, <laughs> and the only people who are not there are two people who've died. One wow. Ali was one. Yeah. So we'll keep an eye out for Dorothy's book of poems coming out this year, definitely. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Dorothy, thank you so much for joining me today on Out of the Box. It's been quite incredible hearing all of the things you've done. Well, it's an honour. It really is an honour. I'm most thankful. Thank you. What song would you like to finish on? Parnas Angelicus, I think. It was the last solo I ever sang uh, before I had my thyroid gland removed and I can't sing properly anymore. Mm. 
You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5. This is Parnas Angelicus. To finish off this episode of Out of the Box, if you did want to listen back, you can do so on the program's page on our website, fbiradio.com, or listen to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Big shout out to producer Louisa for helping get this episode together. And stick around. Brie Kennedy is up in a few minutes for lunch. Bye. Oh.